You're listening to The CX Show, conversations on customer experience presented by SaleMove. Hey, I'm Jeffrey Mack, Director of Marketing at SaleMove, and welcome to The CX Show, SaleMove's podcast on customer experience. Today, our CEO, Dan McKaylee, speaks to Luke Williams, the head of customer experience at Qualtrics, a leading enterprise survey technology provider. In this episode, we'll talk to Luke about his book, The Wallet Allocation Rule, which dives pretty deep into a new way to measure customer experience success. We'll also discuss how businesses can gain a competitive advantage through proper investment in CX. And finally, we'll talk to Luke about what he believes the future of customer experience will look like. So without further ado, here's Dan and Luke. Welcome to another episode of the CX Show. In each episode, we speak to senior business leaders whose roles relate to customer experience, and we dive deep into specific projects or tactics that they've employed to improve CX. Today, our guest is Luke Williams. Luke is the head of customer experience at Qualtrics, a computer software company that utilizes experience management software to help brands assess the quality of the customer, employee, product, and brand experiences, and they're headquartered in Provo, Utah. Now, he's also the author of an incredible book that I just read called The Wallet Allocation Rule, Winning the Battle for Share. Welcome, Luke. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So I want to start up with some of our warm-up questions. I'll be curious to learn a little bit more how you think about these concepts, but how do you define customer experience? Yeah, customer experience is one of these buzzwords that's floating around in the marketplace today, and a lot of people define it differently. The way that we define it in the U.S. actually differs significantly from how they define it in Europe. Um, so, and of course, Wikipedia, you know, has its own definition for this sort of thing. But when I think about customer experience, I think about the sum total of all the interactions that an organization has with its customers, and sometimes that's delivered through a frontline experience. Um, when you're buying something or you're inside of the store, sometimes it's delivered through uh, frontline employees when you're dealing with a call center, you're dealing with somebody from sales. But you also have a number of other experiences with, with the brand and the products that it creates. And for me, those all contribute and roll up to the, to the larger customer experience, which is really um, something end-to-end. But when we talk about the operational delivery of it, it's largely how frontline employees deliver experiences to customers. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one of the, con- I think that, as you very well put it, the, the, a lot of companies are gravitating towards this concept and it means different things for different people. But how do you think, taking a step back, how do you think that you compete on this aspect of customer experience? What's the strategy there? Yeah, I, what, I think the strategy just kind of, people just kind of arrived at the notion that they're going to have to compete that way. So when you think about the way that the manufacturing space went in the 1940s through the 1990s, really. It used to be, if you imagine it's 1975, you used to be able to hold up a product made in the United States or, or made in Western Europe and then hold up a product that was made in China. And you could immediately tell the difference between mm-hmm. the, the quality of those products. And over the course of things like Six Sigma and the total quality movement, you're, you're, you arrive at a place today where manufacturing can be put in the cheapest labor, labor markets because the process of manufacturing um, has become so streamlined and so specific and so clinical. So what happens is, is when you take that 
you know, take that weapon away from companies. One of the ways that they used to differentiate, they have to find new ways of differentiating. And what companies are really figuring out now is that customer experience, which is delivered through the quality of your organization and the way that you wrap operations around your, your first principles uh, is a really effective and sustainable method for competing. And what we found is that if they follow that path long enough, that the type of differentiation that it creates, it results in significant outsized effects, right? So if you follow that type of approach, I think according to Forrester, it was something like a 674% ROI. That is difficult to replicate through a product strategy or, or a, you know, a, a real estate strategy if you're a location-based business. Customer experience is one of those things that we can find it and we can hire it. We can hire great talent that has a high desire to serve. It's coachable. Um, that's willing to serve the customer at every opportunity. So I think companies have finally figured out something that they always have known, which is that you know delivering that experience through people is an incredible advantage in the marketplace. Yeah, and you know, I think that you you, you hit it spot on there because it's a commoditization, and it's also you know companies that are providing products that aren't necessarily physical goods, right? So ultimately, the customer experience is very important in those cases. Would you say that it's safe to say that? you know, you brought the, brought the example of manufacturing is the customer experience pretty much everything that's outside of the product itself, since that's sort of been standardized or commoditized. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a a very strong linkage between brand and product and customer experiences, right? So Mm -hmm. the people who make products or the people who design services, they never interact with customers. The brand is setting the expectation of, hey, when you come to McDonald's, this is the type of experience you're going to get. When you come to the Ritz-Carlton, this is the type of experience you're going to get. And what happens is the customer experience is about delivering on the promises that get made. And it's outside of just making products, right? Your, your iPhone works the same whether people are paying attention or taking a nap today. So from a customer experience standpoint, that is a real-time interaction where um, delivering incredible experiences at scale really requires a significant amount uh, of operations procedures. Much of the customer experience space was actually born um, out of sort of the, um, this, uh, the service quality movement was born out of the product quality movement. So those things are inherently linked. Um, but there's there's definitely a difference between them because when you think about, take an, take an example of the iPhone. Mm-hmm. And while I own an iPhone and I've owned them for many years, I think we can all agree that the, the technology that's being published now is two to three years old, right? So from a product standpoint, Brand is what's differentiating in that instance. When you look at a hotel, for example, Ritz-Carlton, what is it that makes Ritz-Carlton a better selection at $700, $800 a night than a perfectly good hotel across the street that's only charging $300, $400 a night? And the difference is the expectation around customer experience. Right. It's, it's, and, and, and it could be that the, the, the actual quality of the room or the quality of the product itself is incrementally higher, but not enough to justify that incremental increase in price is what you're saying. Absolutely. And so one of the things um, that I'm fond of talking about when it comes down to strategy is that of differentiation. You know, when we think about how we attack marketplaces, there's, there's two ways to win through a differentiation strategy. The first is to be positively differentiated above all other competitors in the market. And the second is to attack places where your competitors are differentiated to try to neutralize their differentiation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't have to be the best hotel in the world. You just have to be good enough that the price gap is no longer worth it and neutralizes that position. And ultimately, the customer experience is the fastest way to scale uh, that type of 
approach. I like it. And, and, and I wanted to go back to that concept of sort of the incremental value that customer experience provides, because I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So, you know, with the example of the Ritz-Carlton, how do you think that a brand like that would quantify and price according to the enhanced customer experience that they're providing? Do you know what I mean? It's a, so that incremental, you know, it's, it's the room is incrementally better, but then the customer experience is a, is a differentiation on top of that. How do you how do you price that? How do you quantify that? Yeah, so I think that thing, so there's actually two questions in there. One is how do we price it? And the other is how we quantify it. And the idea of delivering ROI through customer experience is one of those things that a lot of people uh, have really struggled with. Um, and the reason for that is because the people who are typically charged with managing customer experience aren't the ones who typically have a financial background or a very strong uh, mathematical background. They tend to come more from the social sciences, more with uh, psychology and marketing and, and sociology type backgrounds. So what we're seeing now, particularly with the era of data analytics now being a good seven or eight years of really serious analytics going on, we've started to apply that. And one of the ways that we measure it, like when we think about what are the financial metrics of, of customer experience, there's a number of different ways that we measure that, either by creating value for the individual level. How do we win more share wallet? How do we create more value inside of the marketplace in general by increasing customer penetration? How do we uh, make your process more efficient, efficient, meaning how do we deliver a great experience and have that take less time or cost less resource? The thing at the end of the day that we're really trying to come up to is a metric of customer lifetime value. And that is the financial gauge by which uh, we're trying to understand is the money that we're spending on this experience worth it. And ultimately, all investments in a business, just the way the customer experience is, they're going to have to pay you back, and they have to pay you back at the multiple that is consistent with your sector. So we typically say something like 10x, but in places like um, in the tech space or in the hotel space, that, that multiple may be significantly different. Mm-hmm. So when we're trying to account for that money, we're ultimately trying to understand, like, okay, well, what if, I, if I'm Ritz-Carlton and I deliver amazing experiences that are over and above where the market is? If we delivered a slightly less experience but you know, of high quality, but we're still better than everybody else, and that saves us money, um, does that change our positioning in the marketplace? And the answer to that question is it really depends on the brand, right? And because if you're, you know, if you're competing p- primarily on setting the expectation of what you are in the marketplace and then delivering that or clearing that hurdle by not being amazing, by only being really, really good, it's possible that customers start to defect because that is an erosion of the type of differentiation you need mm-hmm. to support uh, a customer experience model, particularly for uh, the market that hotels compete in, which is a very difficult market. Right. It's an unintended consequence, right? To try to save uh, save on that and then actually end up eroding your competitive advantage, which is interesting. Absolutely. And compare that to an alternative, right? So one of the things that, that's really, when we talk about customer experience, one of the first things I try to study when I'm dealing with a new client or doing a new case study or something like that is, you know, I have a, a process, a series of questions that I go through to try to map the landscape. First and foremost is, is this a market that has a significant number of structural barriers? So to your point of, you know, how do we quantify customer experience? Look at the airline business. United Airlines is, uh, what is it, third largest revenue uh, airline, number one by percentage profitability um, versus revenue. And there's something like number 78 in customer satisfaction hmm. is because that market has a significant number of structural barriers that you can't just get into any airport you want it, right? Or if you're flying out of Newark Airport, for example, you're flying United pretty much 
whether you like it or not, because 95% of flights are United flights. So the airline industry is one of those ones where they only really have to compete on experience more for point-to-point carriers. The, you know, the larger carriers, it really is, you know, what's triggering where you're buying is based on, you know, where you're flying from, where you're flying to, your class of travel, and how much you want to pay. In the hotel space, right, you can go, you can go to one, 15 different hotels because one four or five miles away versus 10 miles away only matters when you're inside of, you know, a, a major city, right? And when that happens, the markets get really tight. So evaluating customer experience is something like every other part of the business that we have to define where it's smart to spend and when it's smart to stop spending. Because if customer experience is meant to be a strategy and not an initiative, you have to take mm-hmm. these types of questions very seriously. Right, and revisit them regularly. Yeah, definitely. We, we see that a little bit, um, but not, not as much as um, people might think. But I mean, people develop strategies and then don't revisit them for two years, which right. is crazy. How much, I mean, you know, considering how much the market. speed of the market today. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Luke, I, I think this is a great segue into, into the featured project for today, which is your book. And, and I want to talk about the wallet allocation rule today. And what I really loved about it, and I'll let you tell our listeners more about it. But what I really loved about it was that it combines a quantitative approach with with a consideration for the competitive dynamics within these industries. I think that's what really makes it very unique and what resonated with me. But maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about the concept and the book itself. Yeah, so the concept really came from uh, myself and a number of my uh, research colleagues at the time, Dr. Well, they're all doctors. Everybody but me had a PhD. Uh, Tim Cunningham, Lerzon Aksoy, uh, and Alex Buey. We were really trying to study what was the difference between making people happy and making them spend money. And the reason for that was we noticed something um, that was kind of a dirty little secret in the, you know, in the customer loyalty, customer satisfaction space, which is when you look at um, direct metrics of how satisfied people are and you try to relate that either to their share of wallet or how much money they're spending with you, the correlation between those metrics directly is like zero. It does, doesn't exist. And, that was actually really difficult for us because well, that's kind of antithetical to the type of thing that we're selling in the marketplace. And we honestly believe that being better is going to be better for the business. We just didn't have any math to demonstrate that. So we undertook a series of R&D, took us about two or three years to do the R&D, and then another two to three years to have it, um, to have it validated with uh, people at Northwestern and Fordham University and Vanderbilt University and a number of universities that we went to. Uh, and then doing it again and again and again in 21 different markets. And we were fighting this idea, right, of just making people happier equals more money. It's a very easy thing to say. But what it turns out is that you actually have two sets of drivers inside of every customer. When you think about what makes them happy, what drives their satisfaction, and the other is what drives their spend. And those things are not typically the same. And Mm -hmm. that became a very significant pivot point for us. Because we went from figuring that we were measuring these experiences to we started looking more broadly at the way that customers behave. And what we realized was the metrics we're so used to collecting inherently miss out on the most fundamental thing, which is to look at the market the way that customers do. And they don't look at you independent of everything else. They look at you in context to all of your competition. And ultimately, what happened was we, we stumbled upon a discovery uh, it was published in the, the Harvard Business Review. It's 
won a couple of awards. Uh, and essentially, it's an actual mathematical law. It's a power law that really helps us to understand um, how to predict with a high rate of accuracy our prediction of someone's share of wallet versus their actual share of wallet. And for the correlation on the brand level, something like 0.9. And while that prediction was really interesting to us, um, frankly, it's not, not as interesting as what we can do with it. Because when we have a formula, it means we know that these two things are primarily predicting share of wallet. That means we need to understand those as drivers. And how do we change those two behaviors? Mm-hmm. And it became a much more clear, much more comprehensive strategic roadmap that was a value conversation for organizations instead of just talking about why should I have, you know, surveys and closed loop procedures and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, we're, we're talking about dollars and cents. And it, it's probably the first time that with any great deal of accuracy and consistency, we were able to do that at scale. And that's really what the research was focused on. Um, and it's completely open source. We did not make this a black box. This isn't us just telling people it works. It's out in the open. People can use the formula and try it for themselves. It's it's a rather shocking premise, right? I mean, it's just kind of to, to and, and I think it bears repeating because it's a, it's a really interesting way to look at customer experience. There is a fundamental issue with measuring customer satisfaction, NPS, customer effort in isolation. That's what we're saying here, right? I mean, we have to consider how these metrics, it's, it's not that it's not important to measure them. It's, it's that we have to consider them in context, as you said, right? Absolutely. And, and frankly, we actually, when we, first, when we first got done with this research, we spent so long doing the validation because when we were looking at it, like this can't, our first assumption as, as marketing scientists Right, we work in the marketing sciences. Our first assumption whenever we find something out is to assume that it's incorrect. We have to assume at the outset that we've made a mistake. And it's the process of, of uh, scientific falsification, right, Karl Popper. And so we went through this process. And what we kind of figured out at the end was, you know, there, we thought to ourselves, like, okay, well, there's no way that this can be true. But what we then realized was that um, the way that we were thinking about it, was more aligned to the way the customer thinks about the world as opposed to the company. And then what we realized is for whatever reason, people hadn't been doing that at scale. And that was kind of where the shift was where you kind of, you know, every major innovation that has ever happened, the person who's responsible for it is standing there saying, I can't believe I'm the first, somebody must have thought of this before me. And that was kind of the experience that, that we had. And it turns out that a few other people had that we, they just, they just didn't get uh, lucky on the math, on the math side of it. Um, so now that we've, you know, added this to the marketplace, I think, again, the, the rule is the rule is interesting, but it's what people can do with it. And it it's consistent with our philosophy in the end, which is that the the most defensible strategic advantage you can have is the people who work inside your organization, the individuality, the creativity and the intelligence of the people who you work with. And we want to put the rule into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, not because we want to get famous off of it, that we don't care about that stuff. It's to see what they can do with it because mm-hmm. we haven't thought of everything for the customer. And when we want to democratize that, we think it's going to add more value, not only to the marketplace in general, but to the entire movement. And if you add you know, a reason to be a customer experience company to some of the biggest companies on the planet, that's something where everybody wins. When companies start being better or delivering better value to customers, I mean, people are happier. Companies do better. It's a win-win-win. 
Absolutely. And I think that it's a truly customer centric approach, right? Because, you know, whereas other metrics may consider the journey in isolation, and that's interesting to look at from almost an academic perspective, this considers a holistic perspective of what the customer is experiencing really when they interact with the brand, right? So I think I'd love to dig in a little bit deeper in terms of how we assess the competition. So we're talking about now we have the, this, this concept that Customer experience metrics should not be evaluated in isolation. They should be considered in the context of the competitive landscape. How do I, as a business, find my place within that landscape? How do I know my rank? So the wallet allocation rule, for those who haven't seen the very simple formula, it has two primary variables that are working inside of it. And there's only two variables that you really have to keep track of. The first one is at the respondent level for every individual inside of your customer database. For the products and services that you sell, how many brands are they using to satisfy those needs, right? So if I'm a grocery store, I may see their customer satisfaction score and I see they're spending with me, but it doesn't necessarily tell me who else they're spending money with. So if you're Trader Joe's, yes, you compete with Whole Foods, but you're also competing directly with Costco, right? So I give uh, an example because actually it's important to know the size of the competitive set for each individual. It's actually the number one predictor of share of wallet. And I give an example of this. There's birthday cake on the table. Three people come to the birthday party. No matter how fast you eat, chances are you're going to get a lot of cake, right? Or as much cake as you want. You may not get the most cake, but you're going to get a lot. Now, if there's 40 people at the party, no matter how hard you try, the average you know, share of that cake that you're going to get is going to be significantly smaller. So the more competitors inside of people's wallets by nature, the less money that you're going to get. And the simple theme of that is you have to give customers fewer reasons to shop competitors, right? That's rule number one. Rule number two, right? So variable number two that we track um, is what we refer to as a comparative uh, satisfaction score. So, for example, if um, I were to uh, ask my boss um, what is his satisfaction with my performance and he gives me uh, a 9, naturally I think that score is pretty good. If you're going to give me a 9 out of 10, I think most people on the planet would be like, yep, that's a pretty good score. Here's the problem. I don't actually understand how he feels about my performance unless I contextualize that with the way he rated other people. If he gave me a 9 and gave everybody else a 7, I feel pretty good about my performance. If he gives me a nine and gives everybody else a 10, I actually feel pretty bad about my performance. And this is one of those things where um, people typically make the mistake of just thinking, hey, uh, my basic number is pretty good. But it turns out that my boss is the type of person who only hires people who will deliver a 10 when it comes to how they, they work. And that's not just an example that I'm giving. There are lots of industries where the standard for delivery is extraordinarily high. To look at, for example, the wealth management space. The wealth management space, people split apart their wealth because they do it for diversification purposes. If you're getting a nine in, in the wealth management you know, space, chances are that number is not the best because people will only work with people they would be willing to rate a 10. Because if you make a slight mistake and you make a nine, they're gonna find somebody else to do their wealth advising. It's too important. And mm -hmm. it's not just in something specific like that. What you tend to see is people tend to only work with brands that they like. So even if you're not amazing, people will give you a nine or a 10. Kmart was getting nines or tens right up until it went into bankruptcy. 
So at the end of the day, we're really just tracking those two variables, which is the size of the usage set on the respondent level, and then the comparative satisfaction, where we're transforming the number that we get from people on a scale into a ranking. Am I the best of all the brands that you use? Am I tied for best or is somebody else better? We found that that those are highly predictive uh, of differential and share of wallet. And you know what I like about it also is that it's it's inherently actionable, right? Because immediately when you start looking at it through this lens, right, how do I reduce the number of possible options that my customers have outside of doing business with me, right? What are the what are the, those factors that are drawing customers away from me? Uh, even if even if they are very satisfied with my offering, what is making them go do business with someone with another company? Right. So what, what are some ways what are some ways that we can think of or some strategies around this concept? How do we how do how do businesses reduce the number of options or reduce the appeal of the competitors that are in their space? Yeah. So there's there's two ways that we that, you know, that that I think about it you know right off the top of my head. And the first, the first one I refer to as the sufficiency, sufficiency approach, and the other is an excellence approach. So when you think about the example of uh, grocery stores, it's actually very common now to see um, people go to three different grocery stores to get their food over the course of a month, right? They'll go to a big box store like Costco to get all their bulk items, nothing more in America, more beloved than bulk items. The <laughs> second place that you're going to go is uh, like their regular everyday grocery store. This could be ShopRite, this could be Foodline, this could be Regmans, this could be Publix, where I'm going to go and do most of the you know my basic shopping, right? I'm going to get um, I'm going to get my cold cuts. I'm going to get um, some of my frozen stuff that you know I don't need in bulk, or uh, I'm going to get all those regular food things. I'm going to pick up cheese and all that kind of stuff. And then people have started this new category of specialty food shopping, where people will go and spend an almost irrational amount of money. Right at at a higher end food store, as the U.S. starts to move towards this pattern of towards healthy eating, they'll go there for specialty breads and cheeses, right, and specialty meats and things like that. So if I'm if I'm that middle store, if I'm Wegmans or Publix are really good examples of brands that have done this, where they said actually, we know that you're going to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods for bread, right, or for cheeses. So what I'm going to do is I may never have as good a loaf of bread as those places that are baking it you know, right there on premise, um, but I, I'm going to have bread that's good enough that it's no longer worth the drive. And in addition to that, I'm going to upgrade my meats and cheeses because I know that you tend to buy those things together, and now I'm giving you fewer and fewer reasons to drive five or six miles, and I'm also giving you an average savings in cost. So that's one approach. The second – and exactly the opposite, right? If you want to actually attract new customers, increasing brand penetration in a market is one of the most valuable things that you can do for a company. If, if you want to read a book, uh, it's called How Brands Grow. It's sponsored by the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, which is big believers in this philosophy and the right. And the question is, is how do I start to grow uh, my share in a marketplace by driving penetration, by, by increasing or being included in that competitor set. And oftentimes it's something that's differentiated. That's exactly how Whole Foods got in the, in the market. They started looking um, at, at the underserved markets, people who had specialty diets, people who were willing to pay uh, a 2x multiple over what they were paying at a regular grocery store to have a higher quality food. 
So it's, uh, it's, it, it's a constant battle. This is one that has to be measured all the time. You can't measure um, strategy in markets once or twice a year and assume you understand how it's playing, particularly for location-based businesses, where when you're having that conversation uh, in the Southeast, the competitive set is completely different from the Northeast. So mm-hmm. National brands like Costco or Trader Joe's or Whole Foods are looking at very different consumer landscapes. And I think you see their financial results definitely vary according to those things that honestly define cultural differences between different parts of the country. Right. So sufficiency approach and excellency approach, you said, correct? Correct. Yeah. So make sufficiency is you know, giving good enough reason to mm-hmm. not let your customers go someplace else, right? Make that a harder decision for them. And the other is to do something so amazing that they, it can't be matched anyplace else. Right. No, I like that framework. It, it gives us, it gives, you know, a, 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 it's essentially that it's a, it's a good framework to start thinking about strategically. How do we interpret these results? What actions are we going to take to, um, to increase our share? Correct. So what do you think are some of the, the biggest pitfalls when it comes to working with these concepts for businesses? How, what are the challenges that they face in, in, in implementing these approaches? I think the number one challenge to implementing something like wallet allocation is that people who traditionally measure um, customer experience don't tend to have as much experience in the strategy side. And the people who work in the strategy portion of the business don't tend to have as much um, metric collection type of experience. They tend to use a lot of um, you know, desk research and secondary sources of research so measuring things in this way for, or acting in these ways is actually uncomfortable for either party that you're talking to. And really what this rule is doing is saying, no, 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 the stuff that you guys are talking about is inherently connected and you need to get a lot more connected. And it's forcing those two groups to add a skill set, which is learning the other group's language a little bit more. And that can always be difficult because when you're dealing with two groups that are so valuable to the organization, there's inherently some conflict about how, how they go to the market with that. You know, how do we actually deploy that inside of the, of, of the space? And the truth is, is that if you're willing to um, get disruptive, if you're willing to be innovative, there are, we've seen very rapid advances uh, from organizations, but mostly the barrier to deploying something like wallet allocation rule is an age old problem of like, how do we, how do we create a culture where innovation and change is a natural part of how we do business? Mm-hmm. which I think doesn't affect just wallet allocation rule, but in general, how do, how do we lead markets instead of join markets? And the people who are first movers in markets, oftentimes they have that first mover advantage. And most don't do that. Most companies are me too companies um, that they wait for somebody else to take the risk and then they join and they accept that they will have fewer gains. But some companies who make that part of like their, their first principles, a part of the DNA of the organization, you look at places uh, like Google and Amazon, for example, they're, they're constantly on the gas. They're constantly doing this type of research and they force groups to come together because they're not confused. as to what the goal is. Mm-hmm. The goal is not to come up with perfect answers or be the owner of the strategy. It's to make money. And, you know, doing this type of work as a team, as a unified team, accelerates the delivery of that value. Yeah, I think I think that, that that's 
That's exactly right. What you just said there, the last point, which is this sort of doing it as a team, right? Finding the cross-departmental collaboration that's needed to drive these initiatives forward, both in terms of measuring them and then taking action on them, I think is, is a very big challenge for organizations. Yeah, companies we've seen really su- succeed uh, with wallet allocation and similar um, strategies focused on actual financial metrics uh, and customer metrics are the ones that tend to combine the teams early. They tend to, like, mm-hmm. they'll, have an, they'll have an ombudsman from corporate communications, from finance, from operations, from strategy, from enterprise change management, um, from delivery excellence or whatever the, or, you know, some kind of quality organization. They'll go and they'll find one or two people uh, who can kind of join that cause because ultimately if you're measuring this type of stuff, your, your job is to serve people in those roles, bringing them forward in that process allows people to own and contribute to how that gets measured, right? Strategy has something to say about what that competitive set is that we're measuring. Enterprise change management will understand based on the work you're doing, how it is that we're actually going to make change in the organization. Operations will tell you what's going to sell and what's not. And what Mm -hmm. would actually have to happen to how, how are we sourcing um, the products that we put on our shelves, all that kind of stuff. It's all, it's all one conversation. The, 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 the separation of work streams is completely artificial. There's 10 different ways to reor, you know, reorganize uh, a company and have it function better. And that's ultimately what this is, just a catalyst for change of saying, hey, we found this secret door behind this tree. <laughs> Let's all agree that we're going to walk through it and, and have wins as a result. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, and, and so I wanted to, I guess my final question on, on the topic and, and something that I think I was, I was kind of looking through as I was reading the book, what, what, what do you think about industries that are kind of unique in some way, be it that they're oversaturated and there are so many competitors, so it's hard to rank or stack rank them or ones where by virtue of the customer picking one provider or, or, or one business to, to work with, they've excluded others from the equation. You know, are there sort of edge cases to the rule that you, that you can talk a little bit about? Yeah, there's, there, yeah, there's actually, um, particularly edge cases for in the B2C space. One of the places of oversaturation by nature, um, would be things like, um, hospital, the hospitality and leisure space. And I would say also the retail space. Because by their nature, people tend to want diversity. Um, there are some people who buy all of their clothes from one place, but mm-hmm. that's not as common as it used to be, particularly with, with online retail, where they're sourcing their products and goods from. Um, you could be going to Amazon.com or Jeff.com, or you can go direct to a website. You can be going to a deal site uh, like, like Groupon. You can be going to an aggregator website. You even see this in the, the e-commerce space with things like Trivago, for example, where the product it's actually selling is an aggregation of lots of other products. Uh, and what we refer to that is hyper-fragmentation, where so many different products get used um, that it's actually really difficult. The number one goal there is not to be the best, it's to start knocking out competitors, as opposed to where there's a very small number of competitors in the usage set, like, let's say, for example, banking. Banking, by and large, the way that people behave has changed, but the number of banks that they use for things hasn't really changed all that much. So you may have a checking account, a savings account in one place, but you're getting a mortgage from someplace else. The credit card is coming from a third, fourth, or fifth bank. Um, if you're getting an auto loan, it may come from somebody else entirely. 
But at the end of the day, when we think about, okay, if I'm, if I'm a bank and I'm looking to do cross-product sales, which is something that people typically want, how do I sell more of those products through? Um, you don't tend, you come up on these situational aspects where people don't have as much experience with competitors. Mm-hmm. If you've been banking with Chase for 20 years, you really probably don't have a clue as to what it is that uh, Bank of America is offering. So we tend to see those tend to be really sticky relationships that are extremely difficult to break. And as a result, you have to kind of approach those uh, completely differently. And if you look at the B2B space, there's actually what, there's more structural barriers because the person who's having the experience isn't the only one who gets to make the decision, right? I think everybody in the B2B space at some point has said, you know, I really love my supplier, but there's so much cost pressure that I have to change and right. I didn't want to. And when you start to separate that freedom of choice based on experience from the financial outcome, we refer to that gap as a structural barrier. But on the B2C side, the number of structural barrier uh, sectors is very low. I think of the 21 sectors that I cover, um, probably only three or four really have really significant structural barriers. You know, things like market availability or uh, only being allowed to choose one or the other, right? So like utilities, for example, um, you don't tend to have two energy suppliers, right? Things like that. So some markets um, are extremely difficult, but uh, others are completely wide open and both have their own challenges. And I think what we started to see is that in some sectors, they're trying to learn from others, right? So when you look at the, the, the retail space, for example, the retail space is teaching banks how to deliver customer experience. The hospitality, hotel, leisure space has long been teaching people how to do customer experience the right way because they were the first ones to enter CX markets. The last ones to get there, you know, for example, would be um, Tech Telco, for example. Tech and Telco are some of the last to get to the customer experience revolution. Nobody calls Verizon to tell them how great of an experience they had with the, with the contacts in it, right? By and large, the contacts that they have are good and strong, but by their nature, they're only interacting with the frontline staff when things go bad. So they're already kind of working from a place down, but the product's very sticky. You don't have two different suppliers for cell phones in most instances. So it's definitely one of those things where having a sector-based approach as you're doing this, and one of the reasons we, we did so many cases in the book is because when you get into the se- sector-specific dynamics, you can still apply this rule. This rule has validated now in well over 20 sectors. But what you do with it, what you can do with the information that you gain from it is significantly different from sector to sector. Right. And I also think that learning from the other sectors that are that are applying it in their own ways can be valuable too. Repurposing. For some sure. Of those. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we see we see companies, you know, walk through the door and say, I wanna be the I wanna be the Ritz Carlton of X. Mm-hmm. And I wanna be the I wanna be the Porsche or BMW of of why and it and it's you know we have to pump the brakes a little on on that because those, those brands have spent a hundred years with this as a first principle um, but there's still a lot of gains to be had because the differentiation in the market is still relatively weak we still have amazing players mid-grade players and and, and poor poor players or cost-based players and the market the structure of the market hasn't changed that much is where people slot in and how they make a dime uh, has changed, but you know, there's a lot of opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That was, that was really enlightening. Uh, and I wanted to wrap up today's session by asking you 
what what and I know that you have a lot of experience in this area. As a matter of fact, I think you recorded a webinar on this topic. What does the future of customer experience look like to you? Yeah, this is um, this is a question we get a lot of, and I feel like every time I get asked this question, I change my answer because I keep getting asked. <laughs> you get more and more information. Yeah, and it's just it's also also crazy things start to happen, right? We're starting to see. We're starting to see when we when we think about the customer experience, like what was the future of customer experience? To think about it three, four, five months ago, everything was moving towards um, what I refer to as an anticipatory technological ecosystem, wherein you can have a desire for a product customized and personalized just for you, and then receive it with relative frictionless ease. But I think with all the stuff that we're seeing right now at the moment uh, around data privacy, we're seeing we're seeing GDPR come in. I think that there's a limit to customization that people will accept. And I don't, I don't have a lot of data on that at the moment. It's something I'm studying right now. But I have a strong hypothesis that there's a limit um, where people believe that there's going to be a barrier between what is perfect for me versus, wow, it's really creepy that you know that. Like, right. What, what am I comfortable why, with? Yeah. Right. And we thought about you know, where Yahoo was a couple of years ago where they, they had algorithms scraping your emails. So when you were talking about, you know, a trip to Bermuda with one of your friends via email, and then all of a sudden, like, an ad pops up for a weekend in Bermuda, like, wait a minute, whoa. Um, so I think, for me, the future of customer experience will end up being a balance between uh, what companies could create for you with absolutely perfect information versus what you'll accept. And the gap between those things of just a regular, ordinary product and something that is optimized for perfection is the willingness for the custom, for the company to study its customers so well that it can actually just, rather than know everything, it can put itself in your shoes and then anticipate. And I think what we're seeing from a customer experience standpoint is that means that companies will be inherently more human. What we thought, oh, out, the algorithm is going to place the, replace the need for research, I no longer think that that's true. I think that we're at a place now where that, that human intervention between what we interpret and what we create will actually be more valuable than ever before. And I refer to that as the CX innovation side. And we're talking about wallet allocation and how we're measuring experience. That's on the customer experience measurement side. But, you know, that type of measurement can tell you what people like and maybe what you should do next. But it's not going to generate a new idea for you. And I think, you know, that, that creative human process around innovation, I think, is uh, what the future of customer experience is. Because we've now unlocked, we've gotten so good at the measuring side. Now it's just testing ideas, all right? Testing out what really works for customers and customers that we have to understand so well. And I think we're really, you know, again, innovation, which is still separated in many organizations, particularly in the tech space, and they, they differentiate um, between the, the user experience, right? And so I think we need to, you know, that's really the group that's responsible for the innovation side as opposed to the measurement side. I think we're actually going to see a very significant merger uh, of those two over the next um, three and four years as we optimize for the marketplace and the customer experience that's expected. Right. I think it's ironic to think that the, the limitation, a limitation uh, like that in terms of using algorith- algorithmic concepts to determine the customer preferences actually ends up promoting brands being more human. I think that's that's a really great way to look at it. At the end of the day, it's that limitation that's going to force the brand to really put itself in the customer's shoes and try and figure out what that person wants or what how they can anticipate their needs, as you said. So I think that's a, a really elegant concept. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, 
right now, right? I mean, we we look. It's very tough. We look. We look for the. Per, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, we look for the perfect algorithm that explains consumer behavior, and we didn't find it, right? I mean, what we found at the end was we found this formula, and it's an accurate prediction, right? But we still haven't unlocked like what is the one singular unified human theme that we should be aiming at, regardless of sector. And I think the answer is is because one doesn't exist. It does because not. I, I think we're. You know, we're not the same customer when we walk into a hotel as when we walk into a car dealership, as when we walk into a grocery store. Those are not similar experiences. They're not, you don't have the same drivers. And as a result, it just makes it really hard to peg people. And I'd be worried if it was easy. Exactly. And at at the end of the day, we're, we're, at the end of the day, it's, it's human nature that we're trying to pin down, right? There's a reason why businesses are made up of people. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing, yeah, I mean, they are, it is definitely that case. And, and you're seeing what happened when we try to take that out of the equation. When we try to over-optimize on the analytics and algorithm side. You, know, you hit a wall. Yeah, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a whiplash. That's um, and that's, that's one of those things that markets can't tolerate. That type of disruption, because the amount of investment that's being made down that side right now, companies are starting to, like, all, what's happening is they're running in this race and they're starting to see, like, whoa, that one competitor just ran into a brick wall face first. And we're spending $40 million on the same thing, right? And what's happening is that companies are taking a beat, they're stepping back, and they're reanalyzing their first principles. Like, are the assumptions under this whole thing, like, who we want to be? Do we want to be the type of company that believes that every customer is, uh, you know, rated on a scale of zero to 100, that they're a number at the end of their, you know, their record in the customer, you know, customer database? And I think companies are going back and saying, no, actually, I think we're going to reject that premise. And then we're going to try to, we're trying to serve different markets with different people in different ways. And that requires us to get human and really try to recognize the customer, their wants, their needs, and their limitations. Mm. Fascinating stuff, Luke. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was really incredibly interesting to hear about the wallet allocation rule. I really enjoyed also um, just the way that it's so inherently actionable for businesses as well as just picking your brain on the, the future of customer experience. I think that, that uh, given what's been in the news recently, it is very appropriate. So I uh, really enjoyed the chat. I hope that, that we get a chance to connect again soon. Great. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it being here. Absolutely. And to all of you out there listening, keep making moves. You've been listening to The CX Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. For more information on how SailMove enables the world's top companies to deliver the in-person customer experience online, please visit SailMove.com.